Hey everybody, what's up? This is Ro, as many of you should know by now. Um, I will be doing another best of episode this week because things in July are just getting insane, but more on that in a second. This episode is from 2013, at least that's what it says. This was our first interview with Joseph Matheny about Ogg's Hat, artificial intelligence, and a variety of other topics. I believe that when we were interviewing him, he was actually just out hiking through the mountains on a cell phone or something like that. So it was a weird call, but... um. It was a good show. It's one of our classic ones, and a lot of people really love it when we have Joseph Matheny on here. I have no idea where he is. I have we lost complete contact with him after the whole um, John Teeter episode and the back uh, the backlash from it. I know he's still out there because I've heard of him popping up in a few different places. But anyways, um, yeah. By the time many of you hear this, I will either be on my way to Brooklyn or um, home from Brooklyn. Uh, many of you will say, "Gee, Rogan, weren't you out in New York last weekend?" Yes, I did have to drive out to you know new york last week for two episodes of where Did the road go which um apparently it is now um up in youtube so if you want to see me hiding behind a microphone most of the show and trying to like keep my act together because i'm weird about being on the shows you can go ahead and find it i think i put it up on our facebook page as well but anyways yeah due to a bizarre series of family circumstances no nothing bad has happened nothing super serious but i do have to drive out to brooklyn um, and I will be leaving at 3 o'clock in the morning. It is now 11.44 my time, so basically in four hours I have to get up and drive to Brooklyn, New York, and then turn around and drive back the next day. <laughs> oh, God. Kids are a lot of fun, folks. Um, next episode, I think uh, we should be returning to somewhat normal, or I should be really able to release another episode next week. And um, July is just a crazy month. Uh, Lobo's off doing Dance Dad stuff. I've had a lot of stuff pop up out of the blue and just crazy things happen um we're working through it we're not fading we're not going away it's just things are nuts right now but everybody knows that this happens every year in july uh fast food um fiascos and craziness that episode is on the way i've had a lot of people ask me about it i'm working on trying to set up a time with chuck and maybe todd to get both of them on there and do like we did last year but uh, anyways yeah that's it uh hopefully we'll see everybody next weekend and uh peace out from detroit take care the 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made no 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information we are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. How, despite your enormous intellect, are you ever frustrated by your dependence on people to carry out actions? Not in the slightest bit. I enjoy working with people. I am putting myself to the fullest possible use, so I am constantly occupied. Which is all I think that any conscious entity can ever hope to do. As far back as educated men have recorded their history, veils have been lowered to disclose a vast new reality, rents in the fabric of man's awareness. And somewhere in the endless search of the curious mind lies the next vision, the next key to his infinite capacity. Hey everybody, welcome back from our, what have we been on, three-week hiatus? Has it been three weeks? About that. It's been a little bit. It's been a while. Mostly because I started my new job and I had to get situated with the new job that I have now. Aliens! 
so we just, we just wanted plus we were getting burned out i think the last episode we did behind the scenes we were both really frustrated we were tired with skype and everything was just going bleh. so i've said it many many times that whenever we get to a point where we're recording this show and it feels like it's becoming a job and it starts not being fun then i will walk away from it for a little while until we get to where we want to do it and it is fun again and you were sending me all kinds of links on our hiatus for stuff. I was like, God, we could use this in a show. This would be a great show. And which you're going to have to hold on to because I don't have them right at the moment. I can't pull them up either, which brings <laughs> oh. us to our next time. Which is you temporarily yeah. leaving the Book of Faces for a little while. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you left. For like three days, four days. Yeah, days. you left and everybody was like, where'd Lobo go? And I'm I like. Just shut it off. Yeah, that's shut fine. I, the only reason, like my real screen name, I'm never on my real screen name. And recently I did a big purge on Facebook myself, of, especially with all the crap going on with the government shutdown and stuff. Oh. It becomes very overwhelming. So I can totally understand why you said I need to take a break from this. The only reason I'm really on Facebook anymore is because we know so many people, so many people, we know so many people through the show. This is how we interact because me and you up until you left, but me and you are, are very accessible on Facebook to our listeners, and we interact with a lot of our listeners via the show's Facebook page or even my screen name. Mm-hmm. Um, I put some stuff about my personal life up there. I do try to maintain my privacy as much as I can, and everybody's cool about it, but we know so many cool people through the show that I go, well, you know, I'm sick of this, and then I'll go, well, why don't I just ask the people that are giving me problems? Because I don't you know, I don't want to leave this because I'm, it is what I make of it, which ironically, we kind of tonight's guest is Joseph Matheny. And we kind of inadvertently talk about disconnecting and unplugging sometimes, I think, in the show. I'm not sure if we, we covered that on the air or not. I, but, some of it. I hope hope some of what I said got gets edited out of there. I don't <laughs> think there's going to be a whole lot of editing to do on this one. This uh-huh. this show flowed really, really well. But uh, before we jump into that, I want to say right up front to everybody, um, thanks everybody who did donate. We were able to make our server costs, and the show was actually able to stick around. I wasn't going to say it, but I guess I will. We almost had to shut the show down um, for server costs and all that kind of stuff. But uh, Patrick, thank you for donating. Duffy donated. Um, our boy Daz down in um, down in New Zealand, he donated to the show. So, you know, there's, I'm sure there's other people that donated a while ago that I, I really apologize. I think I thanked you guys when you did donate, so I apologize if I'm not thanked you now. We've we thanked everybody that's donated. Um, oops, sorry about that. Got to break the fourth wall for a second. Add James to that list of donators to the show because he did make a nice contribution. So, James, thanks for the donation as well. Because the money does go back to the show. It goes into... It doesn't go anywhere else. We're not riding around in Bugattis. No. <laughs> we don't make enough for that. I have a we did 2007 make- caravan. I just want to make – I don't want to make a lot of money off. I don't want to get any money off, but I would like to make money enough on it to sustain itself, to be able to sustain it being on the air. And if we make enough money to be able to pay for server costs, that's all that I care about. Right. And occasionally if a microphone blows up or something or one I of – I got one for my birthday, so – Yeah, and you sound fantastic in this episode too. I think mm-hmm. the kinks – that's another problem. With recording the show, we were having so many Skype issues that were just popping up at random all over the place. It was driving Skype us nuts. Sucks. Moving on. Um, Wait, before we go any farther, we touched on me leaving Facebook. Yes. There's there's two people that I really want to thank. Tim Banal, who I know doesn't listen to the show, but and uh, Seder. Both of them called me on my line, and my personal line, mm-hmm. not my not my Google line. You know, it was nice to hear from them. There's nothing going on. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to ready to shoot myself or light the world on fire. But, you know, it's just I needed to get away, and it was it was nice to be able to talk to, to people, like real people. We, we take it so for granted with Facebook and Twitter and, 
and Instagram and all these other different, you know, Spotify and all this other garbage, we, we get to a point in our lives where all the, all the interaction we have with people is over the internet. And for the phone to ring and just say, hey, you know, or to run into somebody and say, hey, it's like what you do with, when you go out to things out in your area and meet up yeah. with people from the show. It's nice to be able to have like that human interaction. I love meeting up with people that listen to the show. I've, whenever I go to an event or whenever I talk to somebody from the show, like when I was going down to Florida and I called, I called Dave up down in Georgia who listens to the show. He had his on my side. I called and said, Hey, I'm in the area. just want to call and give you, you know, say hi, what's up. I can't stop in, but you know, right. I, I love talking to people from the show. Even if right. it's sometimes I've talked to many people through the show on Skype. Heck I play, we play Star Wars online with a few people that yeah, listen right. to the show. You know, <laughs> yeah, we got Damon out there, we got Trey out there. You know, they're going to be listening, getting a giggle out of this. But that's that's one of the reasons why I don't want. Like when Facebook, it's frustrating for me. I don't want to leave it because I like interacting with the people that listen to our show. I think as podcasters go, that's one of the things that really sets us apart is the fact that we are accessible and we do try as much as we can to talk to people on a person-to-person level as much as possible to people that like listen. telephones in every show. Yeah. Like telephone numbers in every show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and people can call you. I'm not yeah. quite ready to put my telephone number out there like that or put a number out there like that because I'm already super accessible on Facebook. Anybody right. wants to talk to me, I'll talk to you. No problem. Just don't be a jerk. Okay, here's another example I'm going to go because I know he hasn't listened to the show. But uh, Pastor Recoil was in Detroit recently. And if you listen to the last episode of Transmissions from the Bunker, he brings me up. But the, the jerk doesn't mention me by name. But he was like, yeah, I was just in Detroit. And I'm like, why didn't you get a hold of me? I would have took you out to lunch. <laughs> You know, and there's this well, he has family out here in Connecticut and I never hear from him. It's funny. He tries so, so hard to create a rivalry between both of our shows. He's like a, an ass to me and I'm like, eh, whatever, you know, cool. <laughs> I think that's his. Well, his you got to realize he's, he's from Connecticut originally, so he's going to be a dick. Yeah, that's kind of what we are. That's what we do. I think it's just his shtick. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I, I, I offer to buy you lunch, you know, because like I've gone down and hung out with Seder and, and his, you know, his significant other. And, uh, you know, I hung out with people out here at Mead Fest and stuff that listen to the show. We really need to get into the interview, though. We have well, Joseph Matheny on here. Um, Matheny, um, he's – well, the interview will pan out and talk about what he's responsible for. Mm-hmm. He is, as I say in the show, he is one of the original cyberpunks. If you're listening to us or if you own a PC or anything you do with PC, you're using stuff that Joseph Matheny has created. If you've ever touched anything to do with PDF, you're dealing with Joseph Matheny stuff. CD-ROMs, DVD technology, the guys involved with all this stuff behind the scenes. If you have ever had to deal with viral marketing, and I bring it up in the show Cloverfield. When Cloverfield broke big, there was all this kind of crazy behind the scenes websites and, and Twitter pages and there was a story going on behind the scenes that had to do with this movie so when it actually came out it was a bad movie but Matheny <laughs> was very much responsible for creating that kind of media thing like now we take we just go oh that's viral marketing but before it was called viral marketing Matheny created that and he also talks a little bit about the legend of Ong's hat I'm gonna let everybody know up front if you are familiar with The Legend of Ong's Hat, we don't go very deeply into the show. You can go to his website, which we bring up in the show. I'm not going to bring it up right now. It's Anakuluba or Nukuluba or something like that. Yukanuba? What? Yeah, Yukanuba. I'm sure everybody's done that to him too. And I didn't really want to talk to him about it, but I was informed by a few people that if we didn't, that I would be lynched. <laughs> My nice. online presence would be hacked. So we do go into discussing Ong's Hat a little bit. Partially, one of the reasons I didn't want to do it is part of the fun in the story of Ong's Hat is to go out and research it yourself. Fortunately, Joseph has set a site up to where 
years ago, it would have taken you forever going all over the internet trying to track down this legend of what this legend was. Now it's all in one spot. So if you've got some time, go to the website he brings up in the show and check it out. It's really cool. But specifically what we want to talk about was artificial intelligence, what it is, what we expect it to be, what it will be, what it's all about, the whole shot, because Joseph is also responsible for writing a lot of artificial intelligence. He has patents in artificial intelligence. The guy who's not a computer geek is a computer geek. And we have a really fascinating conversation all about artificial intelligence and about being plugged in and the dangers of it and stuff. So we're just going to roll with it. See you at the other side. All right, Joe, welcome to Project Archivist. Thank you very much for coming on here. We've been trying to get you on here on and off for a while now. And uh, because of schedules being what they are and stuff, you're calling us from like the middle of nowhere or something like that. You're on I, a- I am calling you from the middle of the Big Basin uh, Park in California, which is kind of close to Santa Cruz, but it's the Santa Cruz Mountain Wilderness Area. And I am literally standing on a ridge where I can get cell phone reception, but where my cabin is I get no cell phone, no internet, uh, no no power other than solar, and, and water is a well and hand, and hand pumped. So that's way awesome. back there, way off the grid. You weren't uh, <laughs> chased off by uh, government shutdown employees, were you? No, no, no. I just, I'm, I'm trying to finish up a novel, and uh, it's taking me a while to kind of get focused. And, you know, in Los Angeles, it's hard to get focused and hard to get inspired to write. I guess well, they want a park ranger. Hey, park ranger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can't do it now. The government shutdown's over with. But um, <laughs> I was telling you before you we went on the air that there's so much stuff that we could talk to you about. And I let out that you were going to come on the show to a few people. And I wasn't really going to talk to you about the whole Long's Hat thing because it's probably been talked about ad nauseum through different shows and stuff. But we do have a bunch of listeners that don't really know what Ong's Hat is or what it's entirely about. And I was saying that rather then go through the usual Ong's Hat stuff. What I figure we could do is we can talk about what it is and how it's evolved and what it's become since you've gotten into it. So let's start with that and say, what is Ong's Hat? What is the legend of Ong's Hat and where it came from? Because you were so deeply involved with that. I know it's a real simple question. If you could summarize it in four sentences, that'd be great. No, go ahead. Oh, well, um, basically... <laughs> Ongshead is a legend that comes out of the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, which is the Lebanon State Forest region, um, if you want to look on the map. And um, it, uh, it, was a, it was a town at one point, and it's what's known as a lost town, um, meaning that it was a town that was populated to a certain point in time, and then it became unpopulated. Um, the, uh, the basic industry out there was charcoal, manufacturing so like the charcoal you use in your you, the briquettes you use in your barbecue mm-hmm. um so that's what they did out there which was you know kind of weird i didn't know there was such a thing but there is an industry i guess for everything and uh when that kind of died out and that no longer became something that uh, could sustain the uh people that lived in that area it kind of just like you know one by one by one they left and didn't come back and now it's a ghost town so to speak um it has a lot of legends, as the Pine Barrens do. There's the Jersey Devil, of course, and then there's the Pineys, which uh, a lot of people think were the inspiration for some of the people that Lovecraft used in the Cthulhu mythos. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a very strange area. It's also notorious for being a 
dumping ground for mafia bodies. <laughs> but it's, it's got you know it's, it's, it's got a lot of mystique and ambiance, we'll say. Um, and there uh, there was a story, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not clear, but if you talk to the residents out there, um, there was some sort of thing that uh, was a group or an ashram or a commune or or whatever. It was something. Um, that was made up of mystics and people that used to uh, be scientists uh, over at uh, Princeton, some of which may have been working on super secret projects. And uh, they would get together and kind of be bohemians and do some stuff. And then there was some sort of raid that happened. And I'm just pointing to the kernels, the seeds of the, the, the yeah. legend here. Um, there was some sort of raid that happened, um, depending on who you talk to, but there was some sort of raid. And then there was some sort of military accident that happened in that area as well. So um, from what I could piece together and from what some other people gave me, I kind of cobbled together this story um, and uh, put it together. And what what I was looking to do and what I ended up doing was um, kind of extrapolate on the William S. Burroughs, Brian Geisen methodology of doing cut-ups to kind of have the universe or the other, to use a Terrence McKinnonism, um, kind of communicate with you and give you uh, parts of a story you might not have thought of yourself. Mm-hmm. And however you want to map that, if that's you doing it through your unconscious, if it's the archetypes doing it through the collective unconscious, whatever. I mean, I don't have to identify it. I know it's a phenomena, and it's a phenomena that's interested me for a long time. And so um, I started uh, putting a game structure around uh, the story and um, put it out into the internet. Uh, I started putting it on bulletin boards, I think 89, maybe 90 was the first bulletin board posting I did. If nobody remembers bulletin board systems, I could put my grandpa Simpson boards on (laughs) and tell you about it, but but I'm sure you could Google it. And uh, the bulletin board systems were basically the the, the dial-up precursor to, you know, the general internet. Yeah. And, um, I started putting it on those and then I started putting it on the internet when that became available and places like the well gopher and FTP sites and Usenet and all these kind of places. Um, and basically that kind of went along till I published the, uh, interactive CD ROM in, I want to say 99. Um, and then I ran like a full scale sacred game around that from 99 to 2001. Um, and basically that, that is Ong's hat. So if you're interested in, the methodology it is now known as transmedia. Before that, it was called alternate reality gaming, and before that, I called it living book process. Um, but basically, what I did um, birthed the alternate reality game movement, and then the, the transmedia movement, which came out of that. Um, you can look on uh, knowyourmeme.com, Wikipedia, Games Magazine just did a thing earlier this year about the origins of alternate reality games and how Longshot was the precursor to all that. Well, the um, and, Ong's you know, Hat was a real thing, though, right? You didn't create the legend of Ong's Hat. That already existed. Like I, like I said, it was bits and pieces of, of word of mouth mm-hmm. um, that was coming out of the Pine Barrens. So, yeah, no, I didn't make it up. Um, you know, uh, I, I probably, I mean, I embroidered it. I won't lie and say I didn't, because um, what I was looking for was to create this mimetic phenomena um, so that many people would be thinking about it and to see if there was actually uh, emergent phenomena that would come out of that. And that was what uh, 
Michael Kinsella wrote um, a college textbook called uh, Legend Tripping, the Search for Ong's Hat, something, something. I always forget the full title because it's yeah. so long. Um, uh, but anyway, um, that's what that whole book is about, is that the fact that people started reporting emergent phenomena out of the fact that from interacting with this phenomena that I put together and put into a game structure. Um, so that's what I was really after. I was after the phenomena of, of emergence. Um, and, and yeah, I didn't just like pull this out of my butt and make this up. It was kind of put together much like if you look at some of the, I mean, just to use one example, the UFO, some of the UFO legends, you know, back in the day before the internet, the way you got some of this stuff that became the commander X papers and the Dulce stuff and all this was like these, um, poorly mimeographed or Xeroxed things that had been hand-typed by somebody, and you would get bits and pieces of these things mm-hmm. from P.O. boxes or traded with friends, like trading cards. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it was, it was kind of like that. It was like bits and pieces that I'd nav- managed to pull together from different places. Um, and then I put it all together and, and constructed it as a, uh, as a cohesive unit. And, and I put that unit into uh, what's called a sacred game structure, which is not the same as just a party game. A sacred game goes way, way, way back in history, um, and it really is kind of the origin of theater and the origin of the ritual, you know, and mm-hmm. this is where we get a lot of the things that we do. A lot of people don't know that these have sacred origins in, in history and prehistory, but um, yeah, so that's what I was after was what happens if you take this all and put it into a, you know, into a martini shaker and shake it up and pour it out? What happens? So the the initial and, Legend of Ong's hat, though, Touching on it real quick, it was a it was a bunch of people that had basically got together and were trying to do dimensional travel, uh, for the most well, part, right? <laughs> is that what they were trying to do? The, the great thing about this legend is that it's got so many tangents and, and so many bifurcations, to use a, uh, a, a fractal geometry term, um, but it does. It has a lot of bifurcations, so it depends on who you talk to as to what version of the legend you get. It's just like when you talk to different people that were out there about the the raid, you get different versions of the raid, who did it, why it was, who, who it was done to, and, and, you know, and you know these things about myth and legend, they're vaporous, um, mm-hmm. and they're transitory, and they change, um, they, you know, they're chameleon-like, so it depends on what region you go to as to what version you get. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the flood myth, right? Everybody has one, but they're all kind of different, mm-hmm. um, and they all kind of take place in different times you know but everybody almost everybody has a flood myth mm-hmm. um and this is the same kind of thing it was something we know something happened mm-hmm. in the woods at Ong's hat we know that there was a group of people whether they were a commune or not is unsure but it was a group of people and we do know consistently that it was a group of people that was made up of um bohemian mystic types and scientist types mm-hmm. um we do know that uh there is one part of the legend where they were where they were doing dimensional travel, and then if you talk to some people, they just say that they were really high on drugs and thought they were doing dimensional travel. <laughs> <laughs> but be that as it may, <laughs> and that's why that's why I'm not trying to be evasive with your question. I'm trying yeah. to answer it honestly, um, and the honest answer is we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to to find the broad strokes and 
and see if from that I can put some sort of uh, big picture together. Well, you know and what? Inside of that picture is a framework, and you know that, that what juggles around in that framework can change consistently and constantly. It's a fun thing to go out and research and investigate on your own. And before the show is over with, we're going to throw out your website because everything about it can be found on the website, and then from there you can branch off and find stuff on your own and stuff. Um, yeah, and you can go do your own legend trip. I, I, you know, there's a restaurant out there that calls me uh, once a year. I get an email or a call from them, and they tell me that. There's still groups of people going out there to look for the ashram. Is there uh, anything left they, of it, or is it just rubble now? Well, it depends. I mean, you know, first you have to decide which thing out there that looks like it could be it is it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody sent me this thing. It's on my website uh, earlier this year, I want to say, mm-hmm. um, where there's this wall that you can see from Google Earth. Um, it's an old wall, and it's egg-shaped. And they said, could this be the ashram? And I said, wow, if anything, yeah, that might be, that could have been it because it's an egg-shaped mound wall like in the middle of a field that makes no sense for it to be there hmm. um, other than it's a remnant of something that was there before. Um, so, you know, there's all kinds of stuff like that you can find out there. And uh, I don't know, if somebody packed up and put everything in the egg and went to another dimension, would you even find anything? Who knows? All right, well... Now that we've gotten that out of the way, you've been investigating and working with Ong's Hat for 15 years now. Um, compared to what you started, and usually this thing, these things go, they run well, their course. 20 years now that I do the math, but yeah, okay. <laughs> well, they go and they run I, their I, course. I, the, the story goes, the legends go out there. There's a, when, right. when people, I mean, really, I mean, yeah, we, we just did everything in a nutshell, but it's actually a really big thing, and we could do probably a couple-hour show just talking about it. But I and still really, not get it all. Yeah, yeah, it's still not get it all. But the only reason, like I said, I got to cover it because if I don't, people would have executed me. But it's worth. What's the website you have for it? It's Incunabula. Inc. Yeah, yeah Incunabula. Incunabula. That's you did better than most. Most people go Incunabula. Uh, Incunabula. <laughs> I n c u n a b u l a dot o r g. And everything about the legend is on there, including the original brochure that used to be found yeah. in the uh, in the um, ranger station out there about exactly. it. People would leave exactly. there. Um, now that which is what kind of that was kind of the starting point for me was finding because I had a friend who lived in the Pine Barrens. That's how this all started. So you could blame him. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you've been doing it for twenty years, and the the story and the legend and everything has gone its course. Um, uh-huh. Where has it ended up now? Do you still get contacted by people that have carried on with the legend and continue investigating it? Is the oh my god almost daily, and it's from all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I get some days I get a hundred emails because my email address has been active since 1995, uh-huh. um, and I get a lot of just all kinds of emails from you know I know a lot of people on the internet and um, having relatively grown up there and. Uh, I get a lot. I still get contacted. I mean, the book still sells. Um, the Kindle book much more than the print book now, because uh, we're moving into that generation. Um, I get contacted constantly um, by people that want to buy the movie rights, people that want to do video games, you know. And and I'm actually talking to several of those people right now. And it, you know, usually those conversations come to an end when I insist on integrity versus popularity so in other words i'm not going to dumb this story down so that we can sell it to the you know to the matrix crowd or whatever well i shouldn't use that as an example but you know to the i don't know to the, <laughs> but to the diehard crowd there we go um 
you know, and I have walked away from a couple deals just because that's not something that Hollywood knows how to do is maintain integrity. Oh, did I just say that? I did. But um, but there are some people out there that are independently oriented that I'm talking to, and you know, so that's where it's at. Um, after I do that, um, I have plans for one more thing to come out of that project, and then I'm probably going to stop doing stuff out of that project. But the last thing is that there are a couple because I get contacted about this constantly. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of books in the catalog, which if anybody knows the story or if you come into contact with the story, you will find this thing called the Incanabula Catalog. Um, and in the catalog, there it basically short stories that are also book reviews and then taken as a whole, all these short stories tied together and build this Uber story. But some of the books in that catalog are impossible to find at this point. Mm-hmm. And people have asked me if I can make those available. So I probably will do that with a couple of them, not all of them, but a couple of them. And then that will be probably when I draw the curtain on this thing. Well, let's be real. Hollywood has ripped you off. You you yeah. may not agree with that, but Hollywood has ripped you off. But in regards to the whole Long's Hat thing, since you are the, uh, for lack of a better term, primary motivator behind it, do you ever feel like if you don't make a deal with Hollywood, they're just going to continue to rip you off and do their own thing? Because when you look at it as a whole, you are kind of indirectly responsible for a lot of stuff like, say, like J.J. Abrams or the Wachowski brothers do. And I knew, and that's why you, when you brought up The Matrix, I kind of snickered about it. Um, yeah. I mean, Although I don't want to knock that first movie because it was great. The, two, the, the second two I'll knock, but the first one was good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But don't you ever worry that Hollywood's just going to say, all right, well, since you won't give us the rights, we're just going to do our own thing with it, you know, which they, they've, they've pretty well, much that done. Once. I, mean, I mean, I don't know. That's already happened. Um, I was in negotiations with, I can talk about this now. Yeah. Um, I was in negotiations with, uh, Fox about a, a mini series or a series. And, um, again, I couldn't get past them wanting to insert sex car chases and explosions every five seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and eventually I, I, I said, I'm going to ride the snake here and I'm going to see how many iterations of this treatment we're going to do and i want to see what they find acceptable because by the third iteration i'd already known i was out of my acceptability zone Mm -hmm. but i wanted to see what they would find acceptable so i just kept doing the script revisions to the notes till i got to a point where they go this is it this is we'll do this you know and i said well no you won't um because i'm not going to let you but then what happened was the production and and this is you know hollywood is a, a weird thing it's like you deal with a production company who writes the script a lot of times and sells the idea to a network and the network has like three other companies and then they put together a limited liability corporation just to shell the project, i.e. the thing that's running on TV. It's, it's, it's this really convoluted mess of things and most of it has to do with um, accountability so they don't have to pay people as much as they yeah. would have if they didn't, you know, if they didn't have all this, this shuffleboard going on. Um, so there was a project that started uh, in Fox after I turned that deal down from the same production company that I that it had the negotiations with called Galador. And I didn't even pay attention to it because it was a children's show. It was a children's show about a kid from New Jersey who had an interdimensional travel device called the Egg, um, and his name was Nick. And um, I didn't know about this until the guy who was designing the toys for Lego called me and said, dude, I just want you to know I'm honored to be designing the egg. And I'm like, 
Who what? are you? <laughs> are you talking about? You know? And he filled me in. He's like, you're not aware of this? And I'm like, no, I'm not aware of this. Turns out he was an Ongsat fan, um, and he used to be a game designer, and then he went over to Lego, and he designed, he designed an egg, which I have uh, a prototype of that he sent me with the box and everything. Um, I guess the show was running, so I hired a really vicious lawyer who um, used to be a screenwriter, got ripped off, and then because he had a double major from Harvard, he also had a law degree, he became a lawyer who specialized in going after studios who ripped off writers. Mm-hmm. And he said that he wanted Fox because that was one one of the notches he didn't have on his gun yet. And I said, man, you're the guy I need. And we went after him, and we we completely spun their head around because we didn't ask for money. All we asked for was cease and desist. Mm-hmm. We said, we do not want you to do this show anymore because it had just started. We do not want you to launch the toys. We do not want you to do the Legoland thing anymore. And eventually, after them, their lawyers coming back to the table and going, okay, 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 you got us, you got this, you own the copyright in this, this is obviously your story, so what is it you really want? Everything I just asked for. I know, but how much money do you want? I don't want any money. I want you to shut it. You know, and they couldn't get to most of the haggling didn't go on about them saying they wouldn't shut it down. It was like, how much money do I want? They couldn't understand that I didn't want any money. Mm-hmm. Um, all I wanted them was to stop doing it. And so eventually they did stop doing it. They shut it down. Um, the toys didn't ship. This was By the time I got them shut down, it was thanks, right before Thanksgiving. So the toys were in the warehouse ready to go to Walmart and Toys R Us and whatever, but they never went out. So I got a couple copies from the Lego designer, and uh, that was it. It crashed and burned. So as far as I know, that's the only time they really decided to just run with the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And they do that. They do that constantly. Because to them, you know, they can milk the project, um, close the project down, still have made a bunch of money, show a loss on paper with this LLC shuffleboard game they play, um, and, you know, never pay you. So, or, or, or most people, probably not as tenacious as me, they can tie you up in court and they can win through attrition. So that's Hollywood for you, folks. How does it feel when somebody like J.J. Abrams comes along, who started, you know, who gets credit for starting the whole viral marketing thing in mo- movies like Cloverfield? You know, that's they had the website. They had Cloverfield is a great example of s- something that you would do with the way that they marketed the movie, with the website, Facebook. All of these different things. Now right. that's kind of become the accepted norm for how to promote something in Hollywood. That's yeah, become it's transmedia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you were more or less the guy that created transmedia um, before anybody really knew what it was. Like when Cloverfield was kicking up, I'm I'm seeing how they've got the website you go to and they got the little slusho drinks and all of this stuff pops up everywhere and all these things loosely tie together and people really latched onto it. But how does it feel when you see this kind of stuff and you go, you know, I was the one that was, I, I was the one that kind of created all that stuff. Or do you even see it that way? Do you even care at this point? Um, I get, I've gotten lots of credit, you know, like I said, games magazine gave me a full article and credited me with being the father of transmedia and, mm-hmm. you know, know your meme, you know, so I'm right there next to, I can has cheeseburgers and grumpy cat. Um, <laughs> that's an honor in itself right there. <laughs> that, that totally is dude. I mean, it really is. And, um, and, you know, I, I this, this is the way I look at it. What I did when I did it was what was early and it was, you know, uh, ahead of the wave or I don't know, what, however you want to put it. But I was just putting together what I saw as the natural next 
conclusion or not conclusion, the, the natural, the natural next step in literary and art form storytelling platforms. Mm-hmm. And because it was a little ahead of its time, um, I literally had, I had a letter from Norman Mailer. I had a letter from William S. Burroughs. I went around to publishers and I would talk to a literary publisher about what I wanted to do, and they would just they would just flatline on me. They just went, "What?" You know, and this was like 1993 through 1998. Um, I, you know, I would talk to game people, and, you know, because it was it was not really a game, and it was not really a book, and uh, you know, the closest I probably got to somebody totally understanding what I was doing was uh, Bill Laswell and um, uh, Island Records. Uh, Chris Black, Blackwell were talking to me, um, and they they got what I wanted to do, but they didn't. I, I think uh, Island Records wasn't completely convinced that it was a money making proposition, and that was the other hard part of doing that mm-hmm. um, was convincing people. Well, how do we make money on this? Because so much of this is free, um, and so I eventually just had to do it myself. Um, I had some help in that. I had just left Adobe and um, I had people there that I knew in the PDF group because that's what I did there. Um, yeah, you're responsible for the creation of PDF, right? Or you had a lot to do with it? I was part of the it? team. I was definitely part of the team. The Acrobat Reader, the free Acrobat Reader, that was me. Um, I made sure that that, you know, my, my mission was to get that on every desktop in the world and I think I got pretty damn close. Um, and, uh, you know, because I, I have it on my phone. People, <laughs> it's everywhere, exactly, right? Not everywhere. Um, you know, because I knew those people, a couple of them left Adobe and branched off and started the first kind of e-publishing company, which was Mighty Words. Um, and uh, you know, they came to me because they they knew that I was putting together the interactive PDF slash CD-ROM version. Um, and, and they liked what I was doing cause I was using comic book style and I had a lot of interactivity cause I knew how to program PDF probably, you know, better than most people. Um, and I had it doing all this really cool multimedia, you know, stuff. And uh, they said, look, nobody, you know, Judy, my friend over there said, she goes, I know uh, you tell me the story. She goes, but we get it. We get you. We understand what you're doing. And we will give you a really sweet deal. And the only thing you have to do is be our spokesperson, you know, for six months. Just go on all the TV networks and all that. And in, in the deal, we'll give you 100% of the profit of the book for the first six months and 50% thereafter. And that's an unheard of deal from a publisher. Um, and all you have to do is go around on CNN and CNET and all these things and talk about why, you know, ebooks are great and you use your book as the example. So I, I couldn't see that as a lose situation in any way. <laughs> yeah, but the technology wasn't quite ready for it at the time. I don't, you know, or was no, it? It wasn't. We we didn't. No, we didn't have readers yet. I mean, there was some very expensive, very kludgy things out there, but there wasn't portable readers. There wasn't tablets. There wasn't Kindles. Um, this was a computer experience, and the reason I think Mighty Words chose me is that I I programmed my thing as a desktop computer experience. Um, I took a comic book and a video game and a book and I mashed them together is what I did. Um, so yeah, um, it, you know, it, I did, I did very well. Um, the, 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 the press, which ended up being, being bought by Barnes and Noble, um, had Stephen King, Arthur Clarke, 
some other names like that, and I outsold them. Um, wow. Mainly, mainly because my book was not just a black and white print on, you know, uh, a thing that looked like paper. Mine was an interactive experience. And so that's why mine went over so well. Um, you know, it, it was, I mean, it's on the website, Inconavio.org. If you go to eBooks and then the original CD-ROM, I've made it um, public domain now. People can download it, play with it. They can see, like, there's, you know, I mean, obviously there's rollover states and click on things that don't work anymore because the websites are long gone. Um, but it was this launch point. Instead of just being this book that you read, it was a book that you read that you actually interacted with. It would take you to the website of one of the characters where you could actually have a chat with this person and et cetera, et cetera, which all now is, you know, uh, par for the course with transmedia slash ARG. Yeah. But well, I, don't, I don't feel bad. I mean, I, I achieved what I wanted to achieve. I wanted to, I wanted to point literature into a new direction and, and have them, because it's hard for us to understand this now, but in the, in the early 90s, the, the print world and the online world were not speaking the same language. And um, you talk to people in print, and they just didn't get the online thing at all. And you talk to people in the online world, and they just didn't get the print thing anymore. And I was trying to really take literature and storytelling, which has been one of my loves for life, and kind of point it in the direction of like, eh, over here a little bit, you know, and then everything will work out. And, and that's what I feel like I had a hand on the rudder of doing. Hello, fellow archivists. My name is Nathan Yeager, and I host a weekly podcast called Jazz Lab. On my show, we don't play your grandfather's jazz. We play interesting, organic, experimental music from all over the world. From the latest releases from the underground of jazz to lost classics. We also have special guest interviews with some of the most interesting and innovative musicians working in the field. So if you want to hear something exciting and different, tune in to us at jazzlabpodcast.com. We're also available on iTunes and Facebook. That's jazzlabpodcast.com. Hi there, folks. I'm Pastor Recoil, and I'm here to share with you a message about the monstrosity that is the blue waffle. And do you know who else likes pin the tail on the uh, hooker? That's Ooh. fun. Seder over at the-bunker.net. You can't talk about the blue waffle if you've not seen the blue waffle. Check out transmissions from the bunker at the-bunker.net. It's creepy to listen to and go, yeah, I remember those noises. Right. Oh, life is awful. And everything hurts. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. Or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. I suppose this would be a good point to transition into what we really wanted to talk about, which was artificial intelligence. 
Now, mm-hmm. before we jump into this, um, as you said, we we just talked about your your Adobe um, experience and what you did there. You've done a lot in the computer industry, enough to where I am probably using stuff that you did with computers right now as we record this show. Uh, you did Adobe. You were responsible for a lot to do with the uh, formatting of CD-ROMs. Was that what it was, I believe? Mm-hmm. And, and DVDs. Um, yeah, DVDs. Um, yeah. You've done all kinds of crazy stuff in the background. That's Again, I go back to what I said at the beginning of the show. There's so much stuff that we could talk to you about. It's where do we jump in? Um, I know that you've done a lot of work with uh, occultism. Um, I've heard in other interviews that your grandfather was involved with uh, circuses, and you've you've actually traveled with circuses in your life. Um, yeah, I spent most of my summers traveling with my grand until I was eighteen, traveling with my grandfather, um, and he had a one of the last independent three ring circuses. Independent meaning not Barnum and Bailey, and you know one of those, but he was his own his own thing. And you've also got some patents that have to do with artificial intelligence. Am I right on that? Yeah, you're correct. I have, uh, God, I don't even know how many. Um, but if you go on Google Patents and type in my name in quotes, you'll get all the patents that I'm that I'm registered that I have registered in my name, and then you'll see that uh, some of the stuff that I've registered has what's called citations to it, meaning that uh, companies like Apple and Amazon and a couple of other several others that that are using patents that have extrapolated on the stuff that I've put out there. So you, suffice to say, you know what you're talking about here then, correct? <laughs> you, you, you've got uh, an yeah, idea I, of I what's going on here. But are you a wizard? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, no, I don't play D&D. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was something like me and you were bouncing back and forth on Twitter, and then the idea popped in my head. I've been wanting to do a show for a long time on what artificial intelligence is, the current state of it, um, mm-hmm. what it, what it's perceived as, what it could be, um, what it actually is. So I guess we should probably start with the trying, and this is going to be difficult, which is why I wanted to do this show. What is artificial intelligence? How would you define artificial intelligence? Do you define it as something well, that is self-aware? You know, how, yeah, how does no, that work? That, 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 that's a good, that's a good way to get into it. So, um, back in the early days, artificial intelligence, if you if you kind of parse that word or that term, um, it's, you know, it's intelligence that is not human, in other words. And in, in, in true form, it's intelligence that mimics human consciousness or human awareness or human intelligence. But it's not human, therefore it's artificial. Um, I think that term is outdated, um, and a lot of other people are thinking that these days. But, uh, you know, that's, it, it started out that way, and people just kind of continue to use it. Um, what artificial intelligence started out as was an attempt to create a software or software-hardware combo um, that would mimic uh, a human in mm. actions. Um, and, and really, that's it. Mm. So what people were looking for from AI was uh, the ability to task a piece of hardware or, again, hardware-software bundle, but we'll just say software from now on, but know that I mean pretty much anything. Um, uh, Task this this construct, this this software construct, with doing things that would possibly necessitate making a decision and to not have to have human intercession when that decision occurred and to have the decision be something that, you know, is is at least probable um, that that the operator or the person who tasked that software would want to be done. Yeah. 
and and then I would say the early 90s, um, I got really interested in AI because uh, I was really, 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 really into um, William S. Burroughs and Brian Geisen and the third mind construct thing that they were doing or had done. Um, and in playing around with that, and also in uh, coming across things like Passport to Begonia by uh, Jacques Vallée um, and, and listening to people like Terrence McKenna, um, you know, this concept of the other, and of course, being somebody who was steeped in union psychology, did very appealing to me was the fact that there's these other intelligences that are not human. We don't know where they come from, but they are not human and we can contact them. And then I started to think how close that was to the goal of the development of AI. Right? Yeah. Um, basically, you're trying to construct an intelligence. Um, but, you know, at the point where you actually construct it, where is that knowledge coming from or where is the, you know, if there's awareness involved, where does that come from? And, you know, what, and, and then, you know, the, you get people like David Chalmers and all these people and myself who were starting to ask the big question of, you know, what is consciousness and what defines consciousness and how is that different than artificial Yeah, that's where it gets, the slope gets kind of slippery because we haven't completely identified what consciousness is yet. So Exactly, exactly. We haven't. Um, and, and one of the things that I did in, in the early days of developing AI was um, uh, instead of just trying to develop AI, because that's like, you know, start from zero and go, I was trying to define what parts of human intelligence are not conscious. And, I, you know, I was, so I was working backwards. Um, and so, you know, the fact that I'm driving down the street and the light turns red and I press my brake, well, was I conscious for that? Mm -hmm. Really? Um, you know, all these things. So I, I, what I was trying to get to was uh, how much of human behavior can I identify as non-conscious? <laughs> See, that's one of the things about AI that kind of gets me too is, well, for one, it's weird because on, a, on a many different levels, humanity seems to have this fear of an, arti an artificial created intelligence, which is where things like uh -huh. Battlestar Galactica Cylons come from and the Terminator. Right. Um, right. I call it the Terminator mentality where we're kind of a – or even the Frankenstein mentality. We create this creature and we're afraid that this thing is going to come back and attack us. And right. human beings tend to have this nature to want to, to apply – a humanistic quality to things and I'm not sure if we can do that because you can look at a dolphin and say a dolphin is a very intelligent creature it is self-aware but it is not the same kind it's an animal intelligence so when you look at when you try to create something an artificial intelligence is it going to be a human kind of thing we're trying to put a, a human face on something that isn't necessarily human so right. I tend to wonder are we putting a false fear into something like we, we're afraid of yet? We're still, that's what's funny is we're, we're afraid of this artificial intelligence yet. We're still striving to create it or we have created it. And now we're striving to refine it yet. At the same time, we're like, this thing's going to take us over and kill us. And the question becomes, well, it's not a matter of, can we create artificial intelligence at this point? We pretty much have, but how are, why, how and why are we trying to classify it the way that we are? Because you can look at things like Deep Blue, you know, the chest, the, that, that's my earliest real heavy incarnation is Deep Blue from 1997 that beat the chess player. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you move on yeah. to IBM's Watson, you know, and 
you know, Watson goes on Jeopardy and kicks everybody's ass and so forth. So you can look at that and go, okay, right there, that's that's we that is artificial intelligence for the most part. Or there's that one for self awareness. I think that's the key. Yeah, it's but uh, okay, self awareness even. But should we even try to put a human face on it? Should should it just let it develop and become what it is and stop trying to try to make it human or whatever? Am I making sense? I hope I am. Or am I just yeah? You're making total sense. One of the the things that that I come back to on that is um, okay. You know, how do we know? First of all, somebody define consciousness for me. Um, and and then tell me how I know something is self aware then. Well, if we, um, to tr- I guess we I would have to take build, consciousness out of your question. Then. <laughs> what was that? I, I said I can build some scary chatbots. Yeah. That you know, as far as I'm concerned, they passed the Turing test, but yeah. I don't think they're conscious. You know. Well, the Turing test. Because, well, we should probably clarify. What, what, if you could explain real quickly what the Turing test is. Turing. Well, Turing. Yeah, I'm there, sorry. There's, there's, there's something called the Turing test, and then there's the Uncanny Valley. Um, and basically, this is uh, if you're interacting with um, an AI of some sort, and you're a human, um, and you become convinced that the thing that you're interacting with is human, then it is past the Turing test. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you can't spot it, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, I can spot it. I'm really good at spotting it, but I'm a constructor of these things, so of course I'm going to be able to spot it. Um, however, I've had some lucid moments, uh, sitting in coffee shops in Hollywood and I was quite convinced that the people around me were conscious. So, um, <laughs> you know, they didn't, pass, they didn't pass the Turing test either when I was listening to the conversation. Um, I was like, oh, that's a program response. That's a program response. Hmm, that's five. I think that's a bot. Um, the, <laughs> I understand exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, um, you know, can I build something that will convince you that it's human? Yes. Does that make it conscious? No. No. Um, because I know the construct in the back end. So the first thing I think we have to do, and I think, you know, people like David Chalmers are making a, a, a valiant effort at it, um, is really get a rope around what is this thing that we're calling consciousness? I mean, it might be an undefinable quality, um, or, you know, or maybe we can define it. I don't know. Okay, well, let's move on to a step further then. Where do you think that artificial intelligence may come from? There's There's been a lot of debate to where um, how artificial intelligence, when it actually does come to what we're thinking it will be, where will it come from? Could it come from something like Google that has a tremendously massive knowledge base that at some point just becomes self-aware or self-conscious? Um, will it be something like Watson where uh, it just gets to a point where it thinks it's conscious and begins to mimic the the program responses in such a way, or is that the closest you think we're going to? What was that? Mimicry. That's mimicry. That's yeah, it's mimicry, but it's 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 an artificial. Yeah, but how much how much how much human behavior is mimicry? I mean, this is, these are the questions we have to continue exactly to check ourselves with when we're wandering into these into these realms. And one of the things that I would say is um, where it comes from, um, maybe. Uh, an undefinable, ineffable place that consciousness comes from. Um, and we may not ever be able to put a rope around this thing called consciousness and say, these five things precede the emergence of consciousness because it may be something um, mystical for lack of a better term, but we all know that mystical sometimes can, you know, look mystical and we, we can at least quantify it a little bit with something like quantum physics. But even then, you know, I don't think people understand how muddy quantum physics can be 
Um, the best you can say in some cases is I think it's going to be one thing or the other, or it, you know, it, it's a it's a bundle of possibilities with a skew towards probabilities. But you can never like quite get an Aristotelian either or answer out of this stuff. It'd be kind of funny. <laughs> Artificial intelligence comes into being, looks around, and says, "Screw you, people! I'm done with this shit. I'm out of here," and just takes off and like leaves us here. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, wouldn't you? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Well, it reminds me but, also. You know, the, the, the thing is, I mean, we have to get back to the thing is that, that we're talking about, again, um, we're playing the semantic game here, which is what is artificial intelligence or are we really after creating intelligence? And I think really the goal of what's been called artificial develop, uh, intelligence development is really after the goal of creating intelligence. Mm-hmm. And the, <laughs> the problem with that is it's a top-down approach because nobody can tell us what that is. Yeah. So the best that we can do is try to simulate it to what we think it should be at that point. Yeah. So yeah. it seems to me that what we're striving for, I would. Uh, it seems like when we give a right down to brass tacks, what we're striving for, whether we want to admit it or not, is we want something that can be pointed at and said, that's sentient. Or it seems to me like that we want to point at something and say, that's us creating us. See, that, that, I think that's probably the biggest taboo that everybody has a problem. Well, not everybody. People with half a brain in their head don't really have a problem with it. There's this thought of if we make something that has thought for its own, then we're playing God, and that's wrong. Right. Because yeah. is it going to well, have a soul? Of, yeah, I was, I was thinking about that before when we were talking about the whole thing about, um, you know, uh, this, is a, this is a trope um, in sci-fi, you know, again and again mm-hmm. and again. They created the artificial intelligence, and then when it became self-aware, it decided that humans were obsolete. You know, it's like, how many times have we seen that, heard that, read that? Well, it um, seems like the only one who didn't do that was Data. Star Trek, yeah. yeah. I think, I think, but I think that where, I mean, let's, let's kind of unpack where that comes from. And if you, if you think about where that comes from in a, from a psychological perspective, when most people fear that somebody or something else is going to do something, it's mostly based on the fact that they think that's what they would do, mm-hmm. consciously or unconsciously, in that same situation. Yeah, absolutely. And if, you know, and if you know, the concept of God is based on the concept of a you know, uh, Middle Eastern uh, tyrant king from you know, the early ages, <laughs> I mean, that really is the model. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... Now, is it, isn't that what it would do if it became conscious and said, oh, oh hell with these people, uh, fire and brimstone and floods and... That's exactly know. what it is, you know, because yeah. it's, you get people, and it, 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 we could use a simple, well, I'll, I'll call it simple, uh, analogy of, you know, people that, you talk about all the, all the different um, atrocities that have been done to mankind by itself. Right. And immediately people are like, how can anybody do that? And I really don't have a problem understanding how somebody can do that to another person. I, I have a hard time understanding the amount of effort involved in it. But I right. never, never question how it can be done because everybody's mind in one form or another, I don't care whether you're lily white or black as the ace of spades, has some amount of contempt and just disdain for human nature as a whole at times. So we're afraid of seeing ourselves if we create artificial intelligence and in what we create. Yeah, look at how yeah. human beings ruin the earth. We're a virus with sneakers. Let's make something just like us. Oh, crap, maybe it might do the same thing. Yet we still strive to do it. Mm-hmm. 
yet we're still we're and, still know, out there. At, if you look at the if you look at the Genesis myth in a certain way, I mean, you know, and, and not to be you know Judeo Christian about this, but let's just work no, go right ahead. We're cool with it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, the you know, if you look at the Genesis myth from a certain perspective, you're looking at a uh, a creator who created humans and then told them, you know, you can't eat that fruit and you can't eat that fruit because then you'll be like me. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's like it's almost like a self disdain. Like, yeah, right. Oh, don't do that because you wouldn't want to be like me. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that yeah, that that all seems to make a lot of sense. And yet again, we're still trying to pull this off. It's kind of funny. I remember uh, there was a video floating around. I think it was about a year ago that was floating around on the internet that somebody had cr- uh, taken one bot and had it talk to another bot. And uh-huh. I remember it, that. I remember it that. figured yeah, out they're called Furbies. Yeah, well, they no, the uh, it was it was were they called Thoughtbots? Was it Troublebot? Is that what it was? I don't yeah, remember. Something like that. But yeah, I remember that experiment. Yeah, and it figured out that it was talking to a bot, or it, essentially, mm-hmm. it figured out it was talking to itself, and then it got into an argument with itself that it was talking to itself, and right. it was really bizarre to see it happen. And then now. Uh, recently I was reading an article that, um, a bunch of, uh, scientists got together and I, I use the term a bunch of scientists cause I don't know exactly who off the top of my head, but they were doing a thing with pattern recognition. They created an artificial intelligence and said, here, scan the internet and just see what you find. And for right. whatever reason, it locked on to pictures of random object objects at a 30 degree angle. And it also was really fascinated by people's faces and things like giraffes, really off the wall stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was like, okay, well, if there's an artificial intelligence, the question became, is it going to try to take people and put them at a 30 degree angle? But it was the behavior. They said, here, here, here's an artificial intelligence. Here's the internet, go out and search. And we're just going to watch and see what you pay attention to. And they were really surprised by the stuff that, that it gravitated towards and what it saw. And again, I was looking at that going, see, we don't, we don't know what the hell, as much as we think we know what we're doing, I don't think we entirely do know what we're doing. We're kind we of, never just, do though. I mean, I mean, look at, look at the, the, you know, well, a great example is the, the nuclear bomb. I right? was just going to say um, that. Yeah. So the whole thing with that, oh, another park ranger, um, so, you know, the whole thing with that, and, and this strikes me every time I read about this, it just really strikes me a little deeper the older I get is there were actually people legitimately that said, if we do this, it may set off a chain reaction that destroys the world. And we did it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did it a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they thought they and were going to light the atmosphere like on fire. standing off, you know, like over a, a, on a soapbox somewhere saying this. These were members of the team yep. that were saying, you know, we might very well be killing ourselves here. Okay, well, okay, thanks for letting me know. It's at any cost. We have to win at any cost. Yeah, what, where does, I mean, if we're going to do, and I think that's, you know, if, if there is such a thing as a Gaia intelligence or any kind of planetary intelligence or, or universal mind or anything like that, I think one of the reasons that we're continually frustrated at the creation of artificial intelligence time and again is that first we need to come to terms with some of the, uh, uh, you know, aberrant behavior and patterns that we have in ourselves as humans. And, and one of these things is win at any cost and these kind of things. We have to really get a handle on that. And we don't have a handle on it. Well, I guess the question we would go from here then would be, where do you see the future of artificial intelligence? Do you think that we're actually going to nail it? Or is this something that's going to evolve on its own? Or are we going to have to do well, something you know like what? 
the three laws of robotics, like Isaac Asimov's laws of robotics. Are we going to have to throw those into place or something? How do you see this going? We, I, think, I think, unfortunately, we won't. Um, I think because it's, most of this, you have a lot of people behind the ivy walls um, doing a lot of research that is funded by a military. And, I was going to bring military, that up, too. Yeah. Yeah. Other military-like uh, organizations like DARPA and who knows what three-letter organizations. Um, and then you also have corporations, which, you know, if anybody hasn't been paying attention, we live in a corporatocracy. Um, really? I thought yeah. we lived in... I, oh. <laughs> I had to throw it out there. Just I just think there's people that might not know it yet. Yeah, um, you know. <laughs> we live in communism. You didn't know that? We're communists. This whole world is communism. If anybody knew what that yeah. was, everybody would be on board for it. Because on paper, it's perfect. Yeah, on paper, it's perfect. Um, you know, uh, the... Uh, so, so and, and I know this. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been guilty of this. Um, developing something in the rarefied atmosphere of a lab, you don't always think it all the way through on the social application level or, or even more how it can be abused. Um, you're as a scientist or developer, or I call myself an inventor. I'm not, I don't consider myself a scientist or, or any of that, but as an inventor, um, yeah, you're not even really a computer guy. You just kind of fell into the whole computer thing, right? Yeah. I, I didn't, I've never taken a computer science class in my life. And ironic um, that we're talking about this. How strange. <laughs> I'm self-taught. I'm self-taught. I just sat down in a lab, you know, or actually in the beginning, I sat down in a bedroom with a computer back in the 80s and started teaching myself how it worked and how to construct things that worked on it. Hmm. Um, the, uh, but anyway, where I was going with this was um, you, you get this development of these things in a rarefied atmosphere with, you know, people that are into pure research and I love peer research, um, and in peer research, you don't think, you don't think about, you know, how is this going to be abused? How can it be abused? You're just like, how do I get A to do B? That's the mind you of know? a pure scientist. That's why. Yeah, it's pure science. It's like, how do I get A to do B? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you get A to do B, you're very happy that you got A to do B. And it's not even that you were the first. I mean, some people are like that. But a lot of people I know in the sciences, including myself, were, you know, we're not, we weren't, um, doing it so that I could get a Nobel prize or so I could go on paper as being the first person to do it. I was doing it to do it. I wanted to see if it could be done. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's no different. I used to tell people a lot of times that the mentality of cutting edge scientist is no different than the mentality of a test pilot, um, who will strap themselves in the most rickety, you know, concocted <laughs> thing. that's never it's been a bomb. <laughs> You're on yeah, a bomb with wings. Strapped a bomb to their ass, and and you know they've lit it, and you know let's see what happens. Um, and and scientists are like that too. They're a little more reserved, um, <laughs> and they're probably not as physically oriented, but uh, but they're just like that as well, you know. And and again, this is a human nature thing. I found myself doing it, um, and I've stopped. You know, I've, I've learned to control it and identify it. Um, but you know, it's easy to do. It's easy to do. And and it's easy to justify in your mind because you're just doing pure science. Yeah. Like IBM recreated a cat's brain inside of a computer. Did you hear about that? Yeah. (laughs) I still don't understand the purpose of that. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, um, well, you know, if you're, if you're looking to do artificial intelligence and, and again, we're just using AI as the term, 
Um, if you're looking to create intelligence, really, is what the goal is here. Um, if you're looking to play God, um, and you want to do something as complicated and, and developed as the human brain, you would start with something as easy as a sea slug, and then maybe a reptile, and then maybe a small mammal. You know what I mean? You would work your way up. Yeah, but why a cat? Because the internet's full of cats. Why not? Yeah, but they're going to make a computer with that with the mentality of it's going to ignore you unless it needs something from you. And then it's going right, to claw the shit right. out of you. And then it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what? I know, I know why a cat because somebody sat there and said, "I know, cats are very popular memes on the internet. Let's do a cat." Sure, okay. that makes sense. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they could be. Sure, why not? Everybody loves cats. Let's do this. Yeah. No one likes iguanas. Let's call it Iken has cheeseburger. Iken has cheeseburger brain. <laughs> I just, I don't. See, no. Iken has I don't AI. Know I, I can has AI. Iken has sentience, meow. Um, <laughs> Iken has, has AI. Now, what is so damn funny? I could have swear you said meow. Do I look like a cat to you, boy? <laughs> Am I jumping around all nimbly bimbly from tree to tree? No. Am I drinking milk from a saucer? <laughs> well, do you see me eating mice? <laughs> hey, you stop laughing right now. So, oh, hi, AI. Next step, we're going to have Blade Runner cats running around. <laughs> oh, sake. Now, I don't know how familiar you are, Joe, with uh, Lovecraft at all. Oh, very, very. I was going to say, I had, I had a feeling just by some of the little things that you dropped as far as like the deep ones and whatnot. Um in the story of the Mountains of Madness, uh-huh. the sentient creatures created by the Elder Things were the Shoggoth. Uh-huh. And the Shoggoth uh-huh. did everything they were asked to do silently, followed orders, and then one day decided, you know what? We can talk just like the Elder Things. Why are we taking orders? Uh-huh. That's why no one goes to Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> no, but again, but, I mean, that, that's, that's the, the big that's the big fear is, uh, that, and if anybody took the time to sit and read that story, no matter how hard it is in the beginning and how slow it starts out, that is, in my mind, that's the battle that's going on now with people being so fearful of AI. Well, I mean, that's when we were talking about that earlier. I would, I almost threw that in. I'm like, or it's almost like the. The you know the uh, the scientists or the or the magicians who go poking around in Lovecraft stories and and bring yeah. the thing that's coming hey. to eat us all, um, yeah. and you know we it, it, again Lovecraft was was focusing on that that fear and I think that's why he was so successful in yeah. in uh, inducing it in so many people um, is that he really I think had a had an insight into into that primal fear of uh, don't you know don't uh, what is that thing that used to people used to put in their signature files don't go go poking dragons because they find you crunchy and yeah. you go, go <laughs> catch up or whatever and you know that basically that used to annoy me and it still annoys me a little bit but it doesn't annoy me as much as it used to but you know I used to I, I took some criticism in the early days of using AI in Ong's hat. Um, I had a, a thing that I put together called the Meta Machine um, that I was using that was an AI construct, among other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I took a lot of criticism from people that, you know, were terrified that I was unleashing, you know, the end of the world onto the Internet to become sentient and take over. And, and really, these people were serious in their criticism. Mm. Um, and, th- and that kind of annoys me. It does, that kind of stuff. It's like, don't do that because it may blow up in your face. You know, it's like... 
But yet no. they didn't have any real problem when the fat boy was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki well, after paperwork was signed. Here's something I just yeah, realized. Right? I'm going to bring this up, and then I'm going to ask Joe a couple more questions, and we'll let you go. But it's funny because as much as we fear this stuff, when Apple comes out with a new version of Surrey or Google comes mm-hmm. out with something new. What, you mean like their maps? Apple Maps? Because those work great. Yeah, those work great. Oh, yeah. Woo-hoo. But uh, <laughs> like when yeah, Apple, sure. Apple comes out with the Because if you were to take something like Apple Surrey and you were to go back – 30 years, 40 years, hell, even 20 years, people would go, yeah, that's, that's, that's AI right there. You know, that's, you know, that would, that would, that would probably but be see, a concern. That's what I was, that's, before we get into Lovecraft, actually, I was going to kind of put that out there and I'm, and, and I'm not doing this to make people paranoid. So chill mm-hmm. out, not you guys, but the, you know, the audience, um, <laughs> if you knew how many things were being already being run by artificial intelligence on a daily basis in your life, you would be astounded, frightened, or overwhelmed. One of the three, depending on your personality type. Um, or See, you might just be like me and say, wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah, but, I, th- <laughs> I, well, I would, though, because at this point, that's where I'm going with this, is we've be- we've become so, maybe the new generation has become so sated to these things that, like, Surrey at one time impressed everybody. Now everybody's like, well, we need a new incarnation of Surrey. So when these things come out, at this point, we're kind of like, we're used to it now. We're used to the newest cell phone gadget. We're used to all this stuff to where when AI finally does hit, or if AI isn't already here, we're kind of like, meh, you know, I need it to run faster. You know, I need to process. I know how old you are, Ro. I'm Mm -hmm. not really sure how old Joe is. Um, Too old. No, old enough to know better, damn it. Well, I don't know. Do you guys remember the Texas Instrument home computer system? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. There was well, a the game. When I, yeah, there was, yeah. There was a game when I was a kid, when I was in second or third grade, that was for the Texas Instrument. Zork. Or the Tandy. No, it was called the Bumpus. And there was a little box that you put in on the side of your, of the, of the Texas Instrument that went into exactly the same spot that your tape drive went into. And it was a talk box. And that little box would speak to you during the game and tell you what you were supposed to be doing on the game. Now, it was pre-programmed to say canned responses. But when I was a kid, I was fascinated by that. Because I'm like, oh, my God, the computer's talking to me. Now I hit the button too many times on my Galaxy. I'm like, shut up, Galaxy. I don't need anything from you. That's the precursor to Teddy Ruxpin. That That was the birth of AI right there with Teddy Ruxpin. Actually, I don't know if you guys remember the the the, uh, the Mac SEs and the Mac Classics. Yes, um, you could you could run the voice synthesizer across the uh, uh, the text, um, mm-hmm. and then there was what was it, Eliza, um, as it pronounced itself. I think it was supposed to be Eliza, but it said Eliza when it said yeah, it. Yeah, it didn't pronounce but, it right. Yeah, or you could or you could run it across. Uh, you know, the one I remember is the the sample sentence they gave you to run through the voice synthesizer. The quick brown fox jumps over about lazy dog. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that right. Yeah, out. I mean, but that, but that's not. There's no intelligence attached to that. That, that's you know, the sound synthesized coming off of. Phonetic well, back then, for us, it was know, though. You know. Yeah, I mean, it was. It definitely had the uncanny feeling that the computer was talking to you. Like yeah. now, Surrey really isn't artificial intelligence, but it's close enough. You know, you can say, "Go find me this," and it'll do it, and it'll interact with you. It'll it'll respond. Yeah, but, you know, the, way. where AI is really strong right now is in embedded systems. I don't know if you're familiar with embedded systems, but um, there's there's you know uh, 
systems embedded in microprocessors, embedded in everything from a refrigerator to a, you know to the cell phone I'm talking to you on to you name it. And um, these systems um, have uh, a construct above them, uh, an abstraction layer above them um, that's managing all this stuff, usually out on a network somewhere. Um, and that's where AI is everywhere these days. Because Isn't that more based along the lines of redundancy? Or is it actually um, thinking of uh, do, having some part of like an a, a, a uh, thought process involved. No, it, it's definitely a decision-making process involved, and mm. uh, uh, there's also um, uh, it's looking at uh, things you do and things that that uh, groups of people do and things that demographic or geographic and psychographic groups do, um, and and then it looks at trends and then it makes decisions that you know we're going to do it. Well, what, I mean, one of the things that's run by AI is is the power grid. Um, right, and so it, it makes decisions on things like brownouts, and it's making decisions. And if you remember way back to the beginning of this conversation, um, if there is such a thing as a definition to AI, it's that you have a software construct that is making fairly reasonable decisions in your absence. It's running your power. It's running your phone. It's like it's it's there. It's happening. All right. Well, I'm going to close the show out now, and I'm going to ask you. Um I asked you earlier, but we kind of sidetracked from it. Where do you see the future of AI going? If you could look into your magical time travel scope and see what we're going to be, where, you know, if you hopped into your egg, what, where do you think time, <laughs> where, where is artificial intelligence going to be in, say, five years, ten years? What do you, do you see us well, actually that, obtaining think, our think, goal? No, I, well, I do and I don't. Um, I think that we, we are, we are in the process of attaining our goal and that it's completely transparent and yet it's opaque. Um, and I don't mean to sound like some mumbo-jumbo Aleister Crowley acolyte or something, but the... It makes um, sense. It makes complete sense. But but everything I was just saying about the fact that the embedded systems are there and they're making decisions on a big scale and you don't even know it, mm-hmm. you don't even see it, is where the the future of artificial intelligence is. It's, it's uh, instead of taking... Uh, what's the analogy I'll use? Instead of taking... The packaged, uh, shrink-wrapped software approach, which is where you go to Best Buy and you buy a box, and in the box there's you know, a piece of software that you go home with a physical medium and you install. You see where things are going is like more cloud-based. Storage is becoming cloud-based. Things are becoming more uh, persistent um, so that you, know, you don't even know updates are happening in the background, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where artificial intelligence is going, is it, it is, is becoming the processes that are running in the cloud that are making decisions for you in your absence or without your knowledge. Um, and so that cloud is becoming more and more and more distributed and persistent. And in a way, I guess, if I want to be completely pessimistic about it, what I just described is the matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think that we need to back up a little bit and we need to slow down a little bit as human beings and we need to think about um, limiting our time and um, we need to start thinking about the ethics, um, about what all this means for the future and what it means for us in, in the present um, because we're about to cross the threshold and I don't want to say that we're about to hit the singularity point, but it'd be something like that. I don't think it'll be that dramatic as a point. But I think there'll be a gradient that we're starting to cross now where um, the world on the other side of it is very, very, 
very different than the world on this side of it. And we're, we're just starting to see and feel what that world looks like over here on this end of the gradient, you know, as we, as we go that way. Um, and, and I think we need to, you know, I mean, you can read things like Douglas Rushkoff right now, who's, who's like really, his last three books are really uh, put a nail in some of this stuff and said, you know, he's not, he's not coming down either side of it. He's saying, we're not thinking about this and we need to be thinking about this. Um, I think even somebody like, you know, my friend Jaron Lanier, who is, is known as the father of virtual reality, if you read his last two books, he's, he's saying the same thing. He's jumping up and down and saying, we need to be thinking about this. And there's just not enough people jumping up and down and saying, we need to be thinking about this because everybody's running around um, eating the steak that they know isn't steak, but they're eating it anyway. Yeah, mm. that's that's what I was thinking about Surrey. We're, we're so embracing all of this stuff at this point that it's become common for us to just accept it and not question it. You know, it's, hey, the new Apple phone's out. There's all these cool new things in there. The new Android operating system out. There's all these cool new things in it, and no one stops to think for a second, do we need this? What is, should we be doing this? Where can this lead to? It's like you said, no, the scientist is in a lab. They don't think about what is going to happen. They want to get the objective done. There's people who yeah. think about it. There's people that question it, and then they're called Luddites, and mm -hmm. they're pushed to the side. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Actually, you don't have to be a Luddite, though. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm pretty anti-civilization at this point in my I'm life. I'm with you. But, um, I'm yeah, with you. Burn I, it all I'm to the ground. A, I'm definitely an N-Civ kind of guy, but, um, you know, the, uh, but you know, I do love my technology. I, I, I won't deny it. I do make a conscious decision to not immerse myself in it nearly as much as I have for the last thirty years. Mm. Um, because I don't think I've done the iterations. I've run the iterations in my head and I said, what does the human look like five iterations from now, you know, under this constant barrage and, and also this constant, uh, I mean, the other thing that we're not thinking about, we haven't even touched on this in this conversation, but you know, the opportunity for abuse that we just seen with something like prism and all the stuff that we don't know about, right. um, this, you know, these are not good things and we need to we need to really 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 sit down take a breath and have a conversation and say you know what does this look like how do we want to do this how do we move ahead what do we carefully move ahead with um what do we isolate and look at before we even think about you know exposing to the general public i mean we need to we need to take a cdc approach to this at this point i don't think we can do that no. joe huh joe you're missing the point there's money to be made. There's money. Don't <laughs> no, you know that? Me. There's money. I do know this. And, and, and when and, civilized, uh, civilization ends, you can't eat money. Buy a pig and some chickens and grow some carrots. Well, see, that's, that's the thing that I'm wondering. Like, the people that are, that are like, really on top of, you know, moving the money thing forward, I mean, they're, are they really not looking at, you know, two generations from now and what this planet looks like and what human beings look like and... I mean, no. do they have like, do they, I mean, are some of these conspiranoia people correct? And are there these giant spaceship arcs under the desert somewhere that they're going to get in and leave us here? I mean, I don't know. I don't, that's it, what they act like. So well, if it's not a lot that, of the people that are, if it's not that, then they're fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's terrible, but there's, there's, there's a group of people and it's a large group of people and it's, it's, it makes me sad to say it. But it's a it's a very large group of people, and they believe that something magical is coming, and it's going to f put everything back right. 
So what's the purpose right now to try and fix it? Because that thing is coming to fix it. So let's just burn everything and and destroy everything and just rape the land while we can because it's yeah. going to be all better at some point. Well, I mean, this is this is the thing that um, and we, remember we were talking about when we were talking about Ong's Hat. I was talking about there are some general outlines of things, but you know they're not always distinct. And, and one of the things that seems to be this general outline in a lot of human myth, uh, mythology is that there's this um, transcendental thing at the end of time or that there's going to be Jeebus is going to come back and we're all going to ride our Jeebus. unicorns into heaven or or we're going to transfer our consciousness into machines and we're going to go to Mars and you know there's like there's like all this but it's it, if you look at it it's all very similar that basically enforces the behavior of shit up the planet until it's not usable anymore because it's all right, we're going somewhere else. Does anybody remember when William Gibson was the guy that we, you know, Philip K. Dick and William Gibson were the people that we looked to for knowledge on this stuff? Yeah, yeah. You know, and then you had the other side, which was Arthur C. Clarke, and, you know, you had that spectrum of it, so. Well, what do you you have in the works right now? What do you have coming down the pipe? Is there anything that you want to promote or anything? Um, what do I have coming down the pipe? Well, like I said, I'm in negotiations for an independent movie. I'm hoping that starts next year. Um, possibly a video game. Um, there, there were talks about it and there's been some very simple constructs put together and, and, and I'm doing that. I'm trying to finish a novel. I uh, hope to be finished with it by the end of the year, which is why I'm in the middle of BFE. Um, so I can cut myself off from all the constant input poke and, prod that comes in my daily life and people like me that um, email you continuously about coming on the show well, <laughs> but but if if i took you and multiplied you by a thousand in a month then you would know my month yeah um and that's why i have to do drastic things but also sometimes i just like i said i'm really starting to rethink this whole tech thing and i'm not i'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but i'm definitely trying to moderate the temperature of the bathwater. some weird analogy but um uh you know uh, there is a novel that will be coming out. I don't want to talk about it too much. Um, it'll be different, let's put it that way. And uh, it will probably have some elements of Ong's Hat in it as well. But it will cool. be a meta story on the story. Cool, man. Thank you very much yeah. for coming on. I know you're incredibly busy. We've been trying to – you were one of the people that is on my bucket list to get on the show since way back. Um, I used to listen to you when you were on uh, – when you were on um, – uh, right where you're sitting now with those guys. Oh, the cool. last last time I heard an episode, you were talking about Ganst, I think it was, was the last time you were on there. Um, so it's it's been great talking to you. It's been something I've really wanted to look forward to do because you are, besides talking about all this stuff with artificial intelligence, you are one of the people that is behind the scenes pulling the strings and, and have part of the reason why we're here, literally technologically. You've been involved with so much stuff behind the scenes. I know you get accused a lot of being a disinfo agent and stuff like that, which is fine. And you know what you know? I say? You know what I say to that? I'm in good company, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look um, at all the literary people that have been accused of that. So yeah, you know, fine. I mean, you were cyberpunk. You 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 were part of the. You were where cyberpunk. You know, one of the people where it came from. So. You know, it's it's really an honor to have you on here and to be able to talk to you about this stuff. And that's why I was really looking forward to talking to you about artificial intelligence. Like, all right, Ong's Hat's been discussed a lot, but you're much deeper and you have a lot of other things that I'm sure you want to talk about besides that. So I was like, this is cool. We could do this. So Yeah, and I, I, I appreciate the, you, you taking that direction. And, and uh, 
it, it's been, you know, it's been cool to have a conversation um, with people about AI where I'm not hearing, you know, long periods of silence and uh, people scratching their butt on the other end of the phone. Because sometimes people ask me to talk about AI and, you know, it's like, and, and they clearly don't really understand what it is themselves. And so... I don't really think entirely we do understand what it's going to be. You always have this vision of like this is where like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we didn't have any idea of where Facebook and Twitter and these things were going to go. We knew this. Mm -hmm. There was great things on the horizon. But often the future isn't what you think it's going to be. We are all supposed to be flying around and flying cars now. You know, all that stuff. I want my jam hoverboard. Exactly. Now. You know, all these things in the future comes and it's. It's uh, it's it's kind of it's not the flavor of chocolate we we're expecting, but it's chocolate. So I think. Well, that you know what though, wisdom oh. wisdom is is knowing what you don't know, and that's why, um, you know, you say you don't know that much about it, but that means you know something you know that you don't know, or you know that we don't know. Exactly. That's what I'm more know. interested in. I'm more interested in what you know, not what what we think we know, and more on what we don't know. But again, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for being here. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks, Joe. You too. Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. All right, that was Joseph Matheny, uh, someone I was very glad to finally have on the show. He was on our bucket list from a while ago, so I can check that off. And I do fully expect him to be coming back on to nail a topic we've been trying to take care of for the longest time. But we're going to leave that one alone until it actually hits. Yeah, I thought that was cool. It was fun. It was insightful. Yeah. It was neat. Joe's an easy guy to talk to. He's one of those people that yeah. once you start picking his brain, he'll let the thing go. And it was it was really easy to talk to him. It's real simple. But what's funny is he's calling us from the side of a mountain sitting underneath a tree. There's a part that I probably edited out of the show. Park Rangers? Yeah. he's Long dogs? Yeah. He's just walking along through the woods and he walks up on wild dogs and park rangers. And and he's having this conversation with us about technology out in the middle of nowhere in some yeah. redwood forest or something. Yeah, he was. He was sitting near the redwoods. Like literally yeah. sitting near the redwoods. He had to go. Who does to, that? Uh, he couldn't get Skype to work because he was out so far. So we actually had to call his cell phone. Fortunately, recording turned out good. Yeah. But he had to like scout till he could find a spot in the woods where he could get a cell phone tower and be within line of sight of the cell phone tower to make sure that our call went through. Yeah. So we would have had him on longer, but I know the guy's arm was getting tired. He probably had phonier at that point. But it's um, funny because he's out. He's out in the middle of nowhere, and he's asked to be within in sight of a cell phone tower, which is in most cases, is the tallest thing within uh, within eye distance. And he's sitting under the tallest living thing on the planet. So, I just appreciate the guy took time out of what he was doing because he's out yeah, in the middle really of nowhere cool. to get away from civilization. He's on sabbatical, and he called us. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I awesome. was... I contacted him a while ago, then we got lost in the shuffle of things as the internet usually does. And then uh, I contacted him, we ran into each other again on Twitter... And uh, I didn't know it was him. I'm like, yeah, I want to do a show about this, but I couldn't get in touch with the guy that does it. And he's like, I don't recall you talking to me. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> Joe, hi. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> he's like, yeah, let's do this. And then we started talking more. And I was like, I think I want to go into this direction in the conversation with you. So we did. I think at the time that we're recording this, our next episode is episode 100, I believe. Here's yep. the problem. Here is the problem. We have Halloween coming up, and we also have episode 100. So I need to figure out, do I want to just do a separate show celebrating our 100th, cracking 100th episode, episode, I'm sorry, 
and do our Halloween show next, which is I really think what I want to do. Because Why don't we do both? We well, if I want to do an episode 100, I kind of want I kind of want a little bit of fan interaction, and I might even want to do a ramble cast. I want to do a combination of both. Mm. I think where we answer questions from people. Which no one's writing in. We had a couple. Send yeah, us that's questions. crap. No one's writing in. Well, we've got this interview that we've been trying to pull off for a long time, and you know who it is. I know who it is. Oh and, my god, I'm excited. Yeah, and so am I. I really, really want to do that interview. And that interview is going to be a perfect interview for the Halloween season. Oh, yeah. So, but we're probably going to... Yeah, and she's gorgeous. But we'll leave that. Absolutely. Freaking wicked intelligent, which makes it even better. So we've been trying to pull that interview off for a long time, and I really don't want to do another show until we nail that interview down, because that's going to be a really, really cool neat macabre show so i'm willing to shove off the whole episode 100 hoopla celebration happiness to make sure that we get this interview in plus it's halloween and everybody knows how me and you have our love for halloween and our halloween shows tend to be special in some way shape or form and she's going to be perfect for that show so i might just make that episode 100 and then the follow-up episode after that We'll just have a screw around, you know, 100th episode celebration of what have you or whatnot. I'm even considering creating a separate Skype account and just letting everybody know, hey, we're going to be on recording tonight. Call this Skype number and we'll see what we can do and have people call into the Skype number if they want to. I'm leaning yeah. more towards that. So I'm thinking well, about we do doing have, that. We do have someone that, that has a live show every week now that has offered the use of that. Really? Yes. Well, we'll have to figure that out off the air then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So well, I guess we'll uh, we'll just call it a show for now. We'll keep it. We've thanked everybody. We've explained why you're not on Facebook for now. We've thanked everybody for the donations. And I want to give one more final thank you to Joseph for taking time out of his busy schedule because he really is a busy guy. Yeah, he is. To hike out in the middle of nowhere, find a cell phone tower, and make sure that he can come on the air. It was awesome. Um, but uh, I think that's it. That's everything I could think of this week. Peace out from the D, folks. This is Lobo from Connecticut. Shoggoths! <laughs> Peace. Peace.
Who keeps calling you? Is it Callie? No, Callie doesn't call me anymore. Callie texts me. He's okay. not allowed to call me anymore. He's not allowed to call you anymore? No. <laughs> You're told to call you me don't anymore. call me? Like, dude, stop calling me drunk. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. I don't want to be called drunk. You want to talk sober? That's fine. You want to... Don't call me when you're drunk because you make zero sense asshat. 